You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. Co-host today on HeadX is Professor Christy Collis, and Christy is the Provost of Private Higher Education Provider, the Australian Institute of Professional Counselors, and also of the International College of Hotel Management. And Christy, you've got prior experience leading teaching and learning activities in two public universities at uh, QUT and at University of Southern Queensland. And as if those day jobs weren't enough, you've just come off the back of co-convening a really successful Herdzer conference. You're on the Herdzer Executive. And your conference last week in Brisbane had approaching 600 delegates from all over Australia and many other countries. I'd love us to hear more about that, Christy. And as a co-host of the HeadX podcast, welcome to HeadX. Thank you very much, Martin. It is my delight and my honour to be here today. Now, I'll just add at the head that I am speaking on the podcast today as a HRDSA executive member, but I'm not representing the HRDSA membership views as a whole. So um, just to clarify that at the head, Martin, I am delighted at the conference we had last week. Uh, It took quite a bit of work to organize this conference. The backstory is that I started organizing this conference in 2019 for a 2020 conference. We all know what happened in 2020. The same thing happened in 2021. I gave up in 2022 and it ran in Melbourne. And in 2023, Hertz of Brisbane finally took place. Well, it certainly did. And it was a huge occasion and a really um, a really nice vibe in the conference of a lot of people in the sector showing their commitment to the purpose of the sector, commitment to students, commitment to academic work and commitment to genuine inquiry. I mean, tell us a little bit about Herds. I don't know in that sort of summary of what I experienced. What, what does Herds stand for and what does it really represent in your view as a member of its executive? Certainly. So HRDSA is one of the peak bodies for higher education research in Australia, and it provides an evidence base for quality teaching, learning and policymaking around Australian, uh, Australasian higher education, I should say. It's been around since 1972. So this is a um, fairly long standing professional association in Australia. And you've, um, by way of that introduction, had experience both working in now in a private provider in Australia, but also public universities. I mean, I've been being treated at the start of all of this of your own personal reflections on how the nature of work and culture is different between those types of institutions through your experience. Sure, that's a good question. I've got a couple of answers to that. So by super brief background, I um, worked in the Australian public university sector for 32 years, and I've been in the private higher education sector for almost one. Um, So the two big differences that I noticed in moving uh, across to private, one is sectoral literacy. So when I worked in the university sector for all those years, I am ashamed to admit that my sectoral literacy was really, really poor. I I knew about the other universities in Australia. I kind of had a vague awareness that there was TAFE and VET out there and maybe some private providers, but what the actual shape and size of my sector was, I really didn't know. I was really quite myopic inside my university silo. Uh, What I've learned since moving, uh, you know, making a move inside the broader 
uh, tertiary sector is. For example, 10% of Australian higher education enrollments are with institutes of higher education. That's what uh, often gets called private providers. That's 162,000 students or about the size of four standard size Australian universities. There's 144 uh, institutes of higher education. Um, and I had no idea about any of this working in public, but the data, for example, the student experience survey data run by Quilt indicates that year on year, institutes of higher education outperform universities in terms of student satisfaction. The second thing I learned was the paradoxical lightness and heaviness of movement in the private sector compared to university. So movement is light in the private sector insofar as it doesn't take a year of consultation to get a proposal across a desk. I can walk it up and down the corridor, take it to the next academic board meeting, and off we go. We're agile, we're nimble, we're market and student responsive. But there's also a heaviness of movement in private that I hadn't encountered in public um, because of regulatory compliance. Your agility of movement and your open-mindedness and broad-mindedness to what's going on in the sector led you to get Mary O'Kane, the chair of the university's Accord Review Panel, as your keynote plenary guest um, for the Herdza Conference last Friday with an interview that um, you convened a panel for to talk to her about where we're up to in the interim report. How, how did that come about and what was the panel that you put in place last week? Having Mary O'Kane come to the conference showed all of our members, including those more junior ones, that engaging with the accord process is something everyone can do, that HRSA members can do, that the process includes us and it's immediate and it's now. So I think having her at the conference was particularly important for bringing what could seem like a really abstract um, review to the ground where HRSA members could engage with it. And Martin, the third reason I really wanted to have Mary O'Kane at HRSA is because I'd heard your interview with her on the HEDEX podcast in March, and I read your joint op-ed in Campus Review. And uh, reading and listening to those showed me that uh, Mary O'Kane is actually a very approachable, articulate representative. And as such, I, I really wanted to get her in front of the Hertz members again so that they could see that engaging in these very high level processes um, still involves engaging with real people. Well, you, you, it was a real coup on your part to get her to, to talk at the at your conference, at the Herzer conference at such a, a seminal moment in time. And I was delighted that you reached out to me to join you on the panel to interview Mary. Um, but we had another colleague with us on the panel asking the questions of Mary. Do you want to tell everybody who that was as well? We did. So in putting together this panel, um, as with my selection of keynotes across the conference as a whole, I really wanted diverse representation. Um, so I think we've talked a little bit about how um, the accord process itself needs diverse representation and diverse voices. I wanted to replicate that in our panel. So we had you, Martin, um, as a private consultant and a higher education analyst. We have me um, coming out of the private sector. And our third panel member was very much representing the university sector. And this was Hillary Winchester. Uh, she's currently the vice president of governance for Charles Darwin University. And she has a substantial track record of leadership roles uh, across Australian higher education. Well, it was a diverse panel and it was a beautifully diverse conversation. And um, without um, without any further ado, straight after this few words from our sponsors, we might invite people to join the conversation that you, Hilary and I had on stage with Mary O'Kane just last week. 
Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, Martin. You've been a bit busy and occupied since we talked with you um, soon after the UA conference in February this year. What have you been up to? Consulting to a lot as part of the Accord Review, talking to loads of people. We were very lucky, as you said, to get 300 submissions, so we digested those. We've written an interim report that has been handed to the Minister. Um, we're gearing up to hear what people think of that. Um, and we look forward to responses from all the people participating in this conference. And then, of course, we're writing a final report that's due in at the end of December. So you're part of the way through a process of, as Christy introduced it, widespread consultation, thinking the biggest things that the sector has thought about for really quite a long period of time. What, what, what are your feelings just at the start about what the extent has been, the passion and commitment that's been shown with the sector engaging with the process to date through all of the, the channels that you've put in place with those 300 plus submissions. First of all, did you get the volume of responses that you'd expected at the start of this process? It's a, it's a great question to ask. And we had a within the panel and with the task force that are supporting us from the Department of Education, we had a, a bit of a, um, a bet as to how many <laughs> submissions we'd get. And the, the bets varied widely. Um, a couple of people were on the money, but there were a few that were much higher. So I guess we there was a sort of feeling we might get more. We did get a lot of people doing a lot of things. And, of course, a lot of people have talked to us by other means. There was the previous round of submissions as well. And a lot of people have been able to come to meetings of various kinds. So, you know, there ha there's been a lot of other input as well as the 300 submissions. But I, I thought it might have been a shade higher. You mentioned I'd done work on the floods and the fires. And when I chaired, co-chaired those inquiries, you know, we'd had typically thousands of submissions there. But I guess it's a bit different if you're, you know, completely flooded out or you've lost your home and, or if there's big fires. And we tended to get, for those inquiries, uh, very colourful submissions. You know, people send us videos and graphic pictures. We haven't had many graphic pictures in this inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were some moments. As I understand it, the report was finished just a week or so ago. Um, yes. And I'm sure there were some times when you were putting the finishing touches and the work along the way where you were probably pleased you didn't get more than the 300 that you did get. But um, I guess it's not all about quantity of submissions it's also what their qualities would have been that would have been particularly interesting to you along the way and i know when we spoke together earlier in the process you were a guest on the headex podcast and it was fascinating to yeah. talk to you at the start of all of this we discussed and you put across the idea of really wanting to get big ideas and getting them from three different places three different sources you were keen to get and we, we speculated on the value of you getting them from the Australian higher education sector through its leaders, through its staff, through its students, through the different stakeholders themselves. But to not stop there and also get ideas from further afield in the world from global education sectors and further afield from people outside our sector of things that might inspire our change. I think you called them big ideas and, and I don't know what your feelings now are 
about the diversity of sources from which those contributions did come through those submissions and the meetings that you've been able to have. Has that met your um, desire at the time for diverse big ideas? I guess I'm a little disappointed in, in terms of the diversity side of things. In terms of the actual content of the submissions, very, very good. But in terms of the diversity, I guess was hoping for more involvement from industry, from employers. After all, they're the ones who take our graduates and who need what, what is produced in universities. Um, was hoping, I think, for more maybe from the sort of wider um, community and, and research side of things. And we didn't see a lot from overseas. We saw a little bit. And we've had consultations with people overseas with experts, but um, we didn't. We weren't sort of inundated with people writing from loads of different countries with views on the Australian higher education uh, system, which maybe we shouldn't be surprised about. I think that that lack of diversity itself is an interesting uh, datum, and it sort of tells us maybe that you know we're important, but we're maybe not as grand in the in the scheme of things as we might think ourselves. And so you've um, hinted there a couple of times at some steps that you took to try and go beyond just what was coming pushed at you to pull some, some views from other diverse sources. Um, coming back to that three different places and with regard to the sector itself, the diversity of stakeholders within the sector, is there anything else you can tell me about steps that you took? You, you referred to a number of meetings, I know there was regional meetings, there were meetings of ministerial reference groups and the like. How did you really tease out that the different stakeholders in the sector might be able to have a voice into the process so far? We tried to call meetings of groups of where we thought there might be a voice. So, for example, with the sector, we, we did try and meet with the deputy pro-vice-chancellors in each category who tend to be things. We tried to meet with deans groups. We didn't get to see everyone, but we've had several groups there, we then tried to meet with groups that might contain a mix and the ministerial reference group you referred to as an excellent group. We, it maybe took us a little while to find our feet, but our most recent meeting with that group was in a series of roundtables with people addressing um, the same question or, or different sets of questions. And that's proved a very good group, which has been convened and put together by the minister. And we're we're grateful to him because it's, it has been full of wisdom. We also took the opportunity to accept invitations, which had a slight randomness to it, um, but tended to be from people who were very passionate to hear about things. And sadly, we weren't able to accept every invitation we got, but we were keen to sort of show an interest where others were showing an interest in our process. And so we sort of talked about it. We were also very very steered by the terms of reference. So if there were things under the terms of reference we particularly wanted to know, we tended to, to pick those up and follow with them. And another group we haven't mentioned but has been very important has been the state and territory governments. And we've tried to meet with relevant ministers and senior bureaucrats in those because there's two really big areas there. One is the ministers that control the acts of the universities and, of course, there's often the skills ministers. So I address the combined skills ministers in Darwin, for example, which was chaired by the federal minister, Minister O'Connor, um, to talk to them about our thinking of, of skills and links to bed. 
So there's sort of all sorts of weaves and connections in here um, where we tried to sort of triangulate data from different sources as we were trying to address the terms of reference. I guess from a starting point of wanting to get big ideas from diverse sources, you've, you've told us that there was lots of, um, lots of quality and uh, uh, 300 plus submissions. There were lots of people that came to you with invitations to engage. There was lots of reaching out, but um, what, what, what's the danger and what have you done to overcome the danger and how can you reassure us all that given that there would be so many people with self-interests making their pitch to this process, how have you been able to go beyond that self-interest to make sure that that diversity really has been listened to and is being brought to bear at this partway stage through it? Uh, that's good. It's a very good question. We particularly worked out who we wanted to see to answer particular questions and to get enlightenment. So if they didn't come to us, we went to them. So a lot of it has been what is on the table on offer, what do we need to find out? And this is, for example, with the with industry, we, we held forums with the industry peak bodies as a group, and they were very helpful so that we could get some of our, our issues addressed there. And it's one of the reasons we checked in with various university and higher ed groups, private providers, as well as the public system. So we went chasing where there were holes and, um, and we sort of balanced that against the things that were there. And I think when you read submissions, and I do it a lot in the planning commission, which I chair here in New South Wales, you get pretty good at reading self-interested ones and working out what the pitch is. Often self-interest, of course, is itself a very interesting thing and not necessarily a totally a bad thing. It, it shows where somebody's coming and where their passion comes. And you can read into it almost always there'll be a, an equal and opposite submission sitting somewhere else. Thanks, Mary. Um, Mary, you, you mentioned briefly before uh, some limited engagement with non-Australian uh, actors in the process. Do you think that the accord, once it's implemented, so I'm looking forward, yeah. do you think it will have a distinctly Australian higher education flavour or feeling? Or is it more about bringing Australia into alignment with global higher education? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think in building alignment with the global system, we'd hope that in some areas we lead and at least stay very up to date with others. In terms of being distinctively Australian, I think we do have a very distinctively Australian system at the moment. I think what will be distinctive is the accord process. And I think that's an inspired idea to keep running consultation with all the main stakeholder groups going. And I think that but it could be could easily be followed by others. That's one of the things about higher ed, as you know, is that national systems tend to chase and follow each other. So one of the things where Australia has led, and it's a great tribute to Bruce Chapman, that uh, the HEX system has been picked up in several countries. And that's, talk about distinctively Australian, that's that's case in point. So maybe there'll be something else in that regard. Um, in other cases, we often look for best practice in other systems. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to find, not that they're not doing it, it's just that we're asking a different set of questions at the moment. One of the things that characterises our sector is that it is both highly competitive and at times wonderfully collaborative. And at times I think a bit muddled as to which way it should go between two. And one of the things I'd like to hear debate on is should there be more of one, less of the other, uh, or more of both? You know, what do we want? Should we have a sector 
where the institutions are very much working together to deliver as a total system? Or is competition, you know, the great mechanism of the market, a really good thing? And arguably, at times, competition has done wonderful things in our sector. You know, the very fact that universities compete in the for overseas students, for example, probably means that uh, the the world sees us as a provider that is is very keen on offering overseas places and are wanting to to do good things in that area. And I could give loads of other examples: competition for research grants that then might be collaborative. So you see the ARC Centres of Excellence, they're called for in a competition round, but the very nature of what has to be put forward has to be deeply collaborative. So you get these sort of combined mechanisms. So, and to say, where do we see things in five, 10, 15 years time as to will it be more of a big sector working as a big system or is it a collection of, institutions may be more diverse than they are at present. Some of the best conversations in this regard have been with TAFE directors, and we've had a couple of very good, very long meetings with the TAFE directors to talk about ways that it might happen in practice, and some of that has been probably the most creative things we've heard, and looking at some of the examples, whether they be in in Victoria, in VET, and, of course, we're very lucky that to have the Honourable Jenny Macklin as a member of the panel, and, of course, Jenny did the big review of VET recently in Victoria, or we've got some of the new developments in VET in New South Wales and VET higher ed links. So there's some very interesting models as well as the excellence of the dual sector universities and some of the things they've done. So it's interesting to look at some of the existing practice and could that be generalised more? When the interim report comes out, is it likely to take us down the route of more differentiated institutions in the future? with lifelong learning and a skills agenda being more important to some than others than it is at the moment? We definitely talk about the diversity of institutions. Maybe we need to talk about it more, but I'll be interested to get responses. Certainly about the idea of lifelong learning, we're very strong about the importance of it in delivering for skills and the reskilling agenda and so on, but we don't necessarily join the two issues up. Again, very conscious of the issue of, of the importance of universities in the regions and the importance of serving people wherever they live in Australia. So as well as regional universities, there's the new regional university centres, the often referred to as RUCs, um, which have been a, seem to have been a tremendous success in bringing higher education or supporting higher education in small towns, you know, far away pockets and so on. You know, it's something we think a lot about. And, of course, we're lucky to have the Honourable Fiona Nash, who's now the Regional Commissioner, a former um, senior politician. And so she makes sure we really do think about regional Australia very much. And it's it's a fascinating... I mean, you can go... One can go on about it at great length, you know, education for the professions. Do professionals stay in the regions if they get educated in the regions? There's the recent announcement about the increased medical places for the regions a lot more professional schools being offered through the regionals. And then there's the problem of of size and um, the challenges of running a regional university that you know very well. So it's a a fascinating topic. And even the definition of what is a regional university (laughs) is an interesting question. Is a university with a, 
um, metropolitan headquarters but with regional campuses is regional is the University of Tasmania a regional university interesting it's a it's a it's a great space and one that you know we were talking earlier about distinctively Australian one that is probably if not completely distinctively Australian importantly Australian I sense from the submissions that there may be an appetite for us finding in the light of some really challenging situations for the students of Australia at the moment the issue of placements, finding placements, funding placements, yes. cost of living crisis, that whether there is an opportunity to redefine the way that our system of higher and all tertiary education might form partnerships with industry to, to make those the funding of those payments more easy to, to put into effect and to really find some way of making the funding models as they serve our student body as we seek to have a bigger focus on lifelong learning and a skills agenda is, is that an area where you've had a lot of your input and concern in thinking about it is. the way forward we have we've talked a lot about placement we've talked a lot about work integrated learning they're really big topics about how the whole issue of student support in these areas. So they're all um, large, important topics and will become and will continue to be very important in the next period. And again, a very important area for the accord. So how will the parties come together? Because you've just highlighted, you know, it's communities, it's industry, it's unions, as well as the higher ed sector and government. So thinking we're coming towards the end, what is the next deadline, Mary, in, the, in this ongoing process? once the report is out? Yes, yeah, so the, the submission deadline will be for about the 1st of September, um, around that period, that sort of time. And then, of course, the big deadline is the end of the year with the submission of the report. And my last question, Mary, here we are at uh, a Herdsa conference with all of these delegates from every Australian university. I shouldn't be surprised. What is your invitation to individuals and to organisations like Herdsa, like HEDEX, the organisation that I'm part of, for how you would see it could best engage with that timetable that you're outlining? What are you looking for us all to do next? Particularly to, from the interim report, to take the ideas and to be constructively critical about them. Tell us what's right, tell us what's wrong, tell us what could be added, what should be added. Give us timelines, give us transition ideas. And um, in a very pithy way, so that we can sort of pick it up quickly and take your ideas on board. But that would be wonderful. And the sooner the better, because we're obviously having to work hard to the final report. So don't feel obliged to wait till the 1st of September, send the ideas in and we'll read them. So there we go, Christy. What a great interview you arranged to take place at your conference there. What what did you make of what um, you heard Mary say and what did you think of what it means for our sector and for herds of members? Well, the first thing I noticed is that Mary O'Kane has the, the deep art of dealing with um, difficult questions. So she's obviously under embargo at this point of speaking about what's in the interim report. And she did some beautiful gymnastic um, dealing with questions that she couldn't answer directly. Uh, besides that, uh, I heard some really important discussions coming out of that panel. 
And some of the key points I heard um, from Mary O'Kane were first significant discussion about connections between the VET and higher education sectors. This is obviously a key concern of the Accord. And um, in reading Accord submissions, I've seen that appearing across the board. So a lot of discussion about how those two sectors might connect better, um, maybe how they might not be two sectors at all, um, how those two can relate to each other a little better. Now, what's interesting is uh, the O'Kane interview is really pointing towards better connections, or I keep saying better, which is judgmental, uh, different forms, maybe tighter, more coherent connections between those two sectors. Um, we have just had the review of perceptions and status of VET, um, which will feed into the uh, accord conversations about the interrelations of these two sectors. But what interested me is then in listening to heard some members' questions, hearing the breadth of feeling about how those two sectors might interact. Um, whereas a number of the submissions to the accord argued for much closer connections between VET and higher education sectors, some heard some members. Um, really resisted a closer connection between the sectors, arguing that higher education can't be truly transformative if it includes skills, and that uh, there's still a very uh, hierarchical relationship between higher education and VET sectors. So uh, what the panel pointed out to me in listening to what Mary had to say and in looking at some of the questions that Hertz and members had to ask is that that connection between the VET and higher education sectors is a hot topic is in need of work, and there is no clear position on exactly what that is going to look like at this point. Yeah, well, that's a very perceptive um, analysis of a very complex topic, Christy. And yes, there's some rich commentary on that in, in what Mary had to say. I, I think your observation about how adept she is at um, fielding questions at this point in time mirrored some of my reflections on, I, I asked her a couple of times in there about the extent to which there was self-interest expressed in some of the, um, in some of the submissions that she's um, received and her experience of running reviews in all sorts of planning contexts and various other environments leaves her very well placed to know self-interest when she sees it and know how to respond to it. But tell us more about what you heard and thought about the interview and what was covered. Um, well, one of the things I did notice in relation to what you're just talking about there, Martin, is that Mary did say she felt some disappointment with the range of submissions um, that were taken in by the Accord. So the Accord received about 300 submissions. And what Mary pointed out was that when she, for example, chaired the um, major review of causes and responses uh, to bushfires and floods, she got thousands of submissions and she said these submissions took all kinds of forms. There were people's videos of their properties. There were photos. There were letters from individuals. There were organizational submissions and so on. The range of submissions that Mary O'Kane said came in for the university's accord was much smaller and largely came from self-interested actors. Um, personally, I'm not shocked about that. I think that. Uh, just mainstream Australians out there are more likely to have something to say about bushfires than they are about the structures of the tertiary education system. Um, but I did hear what O'Kane said when she said she was a bit disappointed at the range of submissions. And Martin, as you say, a number of the submissions are organizational, either coming from universities or university block groups. And those submissions will def will just of necessity be fairly self-interested because they're coming from someone with a stake in the game. 
Yeah, I noted her sense of disappointment in 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 the tone of some of her comments, and that quite surprised me actually. But then I got reassured later in our interview with Mary about how she talked about her and her panel being proactive and going out and seeking views if they hadn't come through from the submissions her, them, themselves. She was really quite articulate about the range of data of data collection methods that they'd used and the work that had gone on in closing any gaps in inputs from employers, for instance, and from governments, for instance, in the submissions by holding meetings and actively going out and seeking things. What else did you hear, Christy? Some other hot button issues in the accord process that are being discussed are um, placements. So this is a this is an issue that dogs the entire sector at the moment. Finding placements for students is increasingly difficult um, and is not something that's being managed at a sectoral level. Um, so there's quite a bit of discussion of placement, a discussion of the role of accrediting bodies in a national education and skills agenda. How much should they control curriculum? Um, what should their involvement be? We saw quite a few discussions of equity. So there's obviously going to be a significant equity focus, focus coming out in the interim report. Um, and that equity focus was one that was echoed by a number of uh, a significant number of HRSA members. Uh, equity is a significant focus of the HRSA conference. So the Accords focus on equity is one that will align with the interests of HRSA members. Uh, Martin, those were some of the things I heard. What are some of the topics you picked up on coming out of the panel discussion? Well, I think you've identified the really big ticket items there, Christy, very appropriately. And I look, no, no one was surprised that equity was going to be to the fore in, in this review. It's very prominent in some of the scene setting that's been made earlier in the year. It's very prominent in the terms of reference. And I think so many of us in the sector welcome that focus. Um, I mean, perhaps more surprisingly for, for me in some of the answers I heard Mary give, that the, the, the fact that there will be some pointers, as I understood it, towards greater differentiation between our institutions. Um, I mean, many people have been calling for this for some time. The, there were a number of people that were hoping that this might be an outcome of, of this stage of the report. And I'm, I'm so intrigued to see what's actually said, because Mary did quite clearly say that the issue of differentiation in our institutions was on the agenda. She she was then at pains to, or, or very specific, about not linking that, as I did in the question, with the issue of the equally perhaps important lifelong learning and skills agenda. But it was clear from to me from what she said that our interim report and our accord process is going to look... And, and with a strong sense of the collaborative work of the sector and all of its institutions, rather than necessarily competitive work um, or competitive behaviour, is going to have a strong focus on us all moving and our sector moving towards meeting the skills needs of, agenda, of, of the nation and serving a lifelong learning agenda. So that, that push towards differentiation and a separate push towards greater sector commitment to lifelong learning and skills were two of the further beyond equity and other issues you've mentioned, big ticket items for me. And Martin, following on from that, I think we saw some really ontological discussion of, as you were just saying, whether the Australian tertiary sector should be seen as a collaborative system uh, working together in a as a you know internally differentiated whole, or whether it should be a strictly market-led um, conglomeration of atomized units doing their thing. 
Um, so this is a, a really deeply ontological question about the nature of the sector. And that's something that came out in that discussion, whether, again, this is a collaborative system or a competitive market-led one. Um, I agree also with you that the focus on lifelong learning is very prominent in the accord. I think we're not going to come out of this accord being able to ignore lifelong learning. And we're also not going to be able to come out of the accord process pretending that lifelong learning just means you can sign up for our MBA later. Um, I think we're going to see a significant redefinition of higher education around lifelong learning. I think we're going to see significant and ongoing change. And Mary talked about that. But we're also going to have to get on with it, Christy. I mean, for me, the elephant in the room from that conversation, as I reflected on it afterwards, was the urgency that Mary expressed at the end of get of getting on and giving further feedback once the interim report is out to the next stage in the process. She she mentioned September the 1st as a deadline for people to give feedback, to talk about the implementation issues, and to work out exactly how we take all of this forward. Well, that's not very far away. I think we're into sort of a, a number of fingers on one hand, number of weeks following the launch of the report before we all need to express what we we think about what's being proposed for us and and how we can make that work and there'll be a lot of that that will happen from what we've said in those earlier conversations by individuals express and individual institutions expressing their self interest on these matters and i think we're already starting to see some of the cracks appear in anticipating what might be the outcome of an interim report, what its differential and partial impact will be on individual institutions. Of course, there's a level of competition, but I think what Mary's also calling for is for, in accord with an accord, if you like, um, the sector giving some collaborative views on what the suggestions are that are being made and how they can serve the sector more broadly rather than just us ourselves. Speaking of next steps and urgency, you have an event coming up on the 20th of July that will help scaffold the sector through discussions of the interim report. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I can. And I'm really looking forward to next Thursday in Sydney, Christy. I'm delighted that you're going to come and join us there and bring some of all of that rich diversity of thoughts that the herds of delegates had after that interview with Mary into the conversation. But I'm also delighted that we've got so many leaders, so many vice chancellors, deputy vice chancellors from more than 15 different universities, close to 200 delegates already signed up um, for us to really explore some of the issues around what leadership thinks about the accords and where it's up to, but also to us to explore some of those gaps that Mary talked about that didn't come forward in the submissions themselves of what the tech sector, what employers, what industry thinks about all of these issues with regards to how technology is changing the future of work. And I'm so delighted that you and a few of our other speakers in our final session, Christy, are going to be there to make sure this isn't just a leadership view, but we are getting perspectives around the issues of culture, what it feels like to work and study and learn in our universities right now what the purpose of our institutions are and how that's being served by changes in the accord and how some of those issues of culture and, and equity can be addressed. And you've used the word scaffold there. I really hope that that event proves helpful to all those that can be there, all those that can hear about it afterwards in dealing with the urgent issues of taking an interim report once it's out and getting our reactions to it back for the next stage of the process on 1st of September. 
Well, I'm really excited and honored to uh, be there. And also, yeah, really appreciate you running the event as a stepping stone in the accord process. So once the interim report is delivered, uh, the HEDEX mid-year conference will help us step towards what's next. When, I when you first asked me to come to the event, I said, oh, of course, how lovely. And then I looked at the other speakers and I thought, gee, um, it's, <laughs> it's me. It's me and a batch of vice chancellors. What am I going to say? Um, but I realized uh, I actually have a productive perspective to bring. As you said, Martin, because I'm not at a university and I'm not university aligned, I'll be representing HRDSA member perspectives. And this is really rank and file teaching and research academics at Australian universities. So I am running a member survey at the moment of HRDSA members so I can canvas their views um, uh, about what they think is important in the Accord. I've also gone through all the HRSA conference submissions and journal um, publications over the last couple of years to identify uh, HRSA concerns. Um, the cool thing about, the cool job that I have at your conference is that I'm not aligned. So representing HRSA at the HEDEX mid-year conference, I'm not a university. Uh, and I'm not a member of a university block. Uh, so in that, in that way, I can bring a nonpartisan care for teaching and learning and students to the table, um, which will give a slightly different perspective to that of my university-based colleagues. Well, it certainly will, Christian. It's why we're so pleased to have you there. Um, but for now, for this episode of the HEDEX podcast, it's been great to work with you and with Herdza in getting such interesting views from the from Mary O'Kane, the chair of the review panel in at this critical stage of the accord process. And we really look forward to continuing that debate in Sydney next week. Thank you, Martin. It's been a delight and an honor to be on the podcast. And I look forward to working with you further next week. And that's all we've got time for today.